Gresham College Presents, Henry Briggs, by Robin Wilson, visiting Gresham Professor of the History of Mathematics. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, before I commence my discourse on the mathematics of the past few hundred years, I beg your indulgence while I, whilst I introduce myself. I was born in the parish of Halifax in Yorkshire in the year 1561. After receiving my education in Greek and Latin at a grammar school in the country, I was sent to St. John's College in Cambridge University in 1577 and admitted a scholar of the house two years after. In the year 1581, I took the degree of Bachelor of Arts, that of Master after four years, and was chosen a Fellow of the College in 1588. My chief study was the mathematics, in which I excelled and I was made examiner and lecturer in that faculty. Gresham College in London was founded in 1597 under the will of the wealthy ambassador, courtier and financier, Sir Thomas Gresham, whom you see here. He envisaged his college as a focus for the new learning of the Renaissance and professors were appointed to provide public lectures in seven subjects, including astronomy and geometry. If to be rich and to be learned be every nation's chiefest glory, how much are Englishmen concerned, Gresham, to celebrate thy story, who built the exchange to enrich the city and a college founded for the witty? Gresham College encouraged the practical sciences. The geometry professor was to teach both theoretical and practical geometry, as well as arithmetic, while the astronomy professor was to teach geography and navigation, as well as the principles of the sphere and the theories of the planets and the use of the astrolabe and staff and other common instruments for the capacity of mariners. I was installed the first professor of geometry in the year 1596 at a salary of 50 pounds per year and occupied my rooms on the first floor at the far right hand of the quadrangle. At Gresham College, I worked on navigation and composed a table for finding the height of the pole star, the magnetic declination being given. By 1610, I had become engaged with the subject of eclipses. Five years later, I was wholly taken up and employed about the noble invention of logarithms, then lately discovered by John Napier, Baron of Marcheston, near Edinburgh. Of this I will speak more anon, but it was a doctrine that engaged me entirely for some time after, and I expounded upon it publicly to my auditors in Gresham College. In the year 1619, Sir Henry Saville, warden of Merton College in Oxford University, founded two professorships in geometry and astronomy at Oxford for persons of character and repute from any part of Christendom well skilled in mathematics and 26 years of age. Sir Henry offered the former to myself, which I accepted and became his first professor of geometry. 
Sir Henry had himself for some time discharged that province and read 13 lectures upon the first eight propositions of Euclid's elements, which were afterwards printed, and then he surrendered the chair to myself, saying, I hand on the lamp to my successor, a most learned man who will lead you into the inmost mysteries of geometry. The week following, I began my lectures with the ninth proposition of Euclid, where Sir Henry had left off. However, I continued to hold my professorship at Gresham College until, uh, until July 1620, and then resigned it. Upon my going to Oxford University, I settled myself at Merton College, which is where I commenced my discourse. For it, it was at that college, in the 14th century, that some of the most sophisticated mathematical discussions of the Middle Ages took place. And later historians would look back on this period as Oxford's golden age of mathematical prowess. At the beginning of our millennium, around the year 1000, Europe was still to emerge from the Dark Ages, during which the learning and scholarship of the ancient world was largely forgotten. Gradually, groups of like-minded scholars would gather together and universities, universities developed as associations of masters and scholars. The oldest European universities were in Bologna and Paris, to be followed in England by the ancient universities of Oxford and, soon after, Cambridge. In 1188, the historian Gerald of Wales gave a public reading of a new work to the assembled Oxford dons. And by 1201, the university already had a recognized head who was given the title of chancellor. This is Robert Grosstest, shown here on one of his manuscripts. Bishop Grosstest taught at Oxford in the early 13th century and founded the tradition of scientific thought in medieval Oxford. At these universities, mathematics played an important role as revealing God's design for the universe and thus its study was the more encouraged. Grosstest in particular studied geometry and optics and wrote of the necessity of investigating the world through mathematics. The usefulness of considering lines, angles and figures is the greatest because it is impossible to understand natural philosophy without them. By the power of geometry, the careful observer of natural things can give the causes of all natural effects. Grosstest's most famous admirer was the Franciscan friar Roger Bacon. Bacon came up to Oxford very young and took holy orders when only 19. After six years in Paris, he returned to teach in Oxford where he established his study on Folly Bridge, an early observatory that soon became a place of pilgrimage for scientists. Most of his money was spent on scientific manuscripts and instruments, and he wrote on scientific issues. This, however, led him into conflict with the church in Rome, and he was imprisoned for his views. Like Grosstest, he believed that he who knows not mathematics cannot know the other sciences, nor the things of this world. And 
What is worse, those who have no knowledge of mathematics do not perceive their own ignorance and do not look for a cure. Conversely, a knowledge of this science prepares the mind and raises it up to a well-authenticated knowledge of all things. Another Oxford scholar was Richard of Wallingford, whom you see here dividing a brass disc. He devised mathematical instruments for use in astronomy and navigation. Here's the manuscript of his treatise on the Albion. After lecturing at Oxford, he left to become abbot of St Albans, where he built a large and intricate astronomical clock, the first mechanical clock of which we have any detailed knowledge, and far surpassing most others for the next two centuries. By the beginning of the 14th century, scholars at the two ancient universities had already started to organise themselves into colleges. In Oxford, University College, Balliol College and Merton were already in existence, while the earliest in Cambridge was St Peter's College, shown here. It's now known as Peterhouse. Merton College quickly became preeminent in scientific circles and the Merton School became famous throughout Europe. Members of this school tried to treat mathematically all natural phenomena, such as heat, light, forces, density and colour. And they even tried to quantify knowledge, grace and charity. Amongst the Merton scholars was William Reed, who designed the Merton Library, the earliest in the country. He also constructed astronomical tables for the Oxford Meridian. And here are some of them, predicting planetary motion from 1340 right up to 1600. Another Merton scholar was the astronomer Simon Breeden, who had been at Balliol College but found too much philosophy there and migrated to Merton. Here are his notes on square numbers in an Oxford almanac of 1344. An unexpected name that appears here is that of Geoffrey Chaucer, author of the Canterbury Tales. Chaucer was interested in mathematical instruments and his 1393 treatise on the astrolabe was one of the earliest science books to be written in the English language rather than in Latin, the traditional language of the scholar. The astrolabe was an astronomical and navigational instrument. It was one of many instruments developed around this time, and several colleges had such instruments named after them, such as the Merton astrolabe. The story is told of a Merton student called Robert Dobbies using one in the year 1420. One night, after a deep carouse, on his way from Carfax to Merton, he found it advisable to take his bearings. <laughs> Whipping out his astrolabe, he observed the altitude of the stars. But on getting the view of the firmament through the sights, he fancied that the sky and the stars were rushing down upon him. Stepping quickly aside, 
he fell into a large pond. Aha, says he, I'm now in a nice soft bed and I will rest in the Lord. Recalled to his senses, when the cold struck through, he rose from his watery couch and proceeded to his room where he retired to bed fully clothed. On the morrow, in answer to kind inquiries, he denied all knowledge of the pond. The most prominent of the Merton scholars was Thomas Bradwardine, probably the greatest English mathematician of the 14th century. Another migrant from Balliol to Merton, he wrote several influential books, including a treatise on the ratios of velocities in motion and his Geometria Speculativa, shown here in a later printed version. Following the ideas of Grosseteste and Bacon, he wrote, Mathematics reveals every genuine truth, for it knows every hidden secret and bears the key to every subtlety of letters. Whoever then has the effrontery to study physics while neglecting mathematics should know from the start that he will never make his entry through the portals of wisdom. Bradwardine's discourses were so learned that he became known as Dr. Profundus. He was eventually appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in 1349, but died of the Black Death only a few weeks later. Most of the mathematicians I have been talking about were also astronomers, philosophers, probably theologians, and possibly physicians as well. But what about their students? If you had been a student at Oxford or Cambridge then, how would you have lived? You'd probably have come up to university in your early teens, sometimes even as young as 10 years old, and lived in hostels or colleges around the town. For your academic work, you would be assigned a tutor who was also responsible for your moral behavior but stories of drunkenness and fighting with town boys were common. For recreation, you might play chess, which had been introduced into England a few centuries earlier. Or you might try the medieval game of Rhythmomachia, which is popular among scholars with a taste for complicated number games. Until about 1550, your course would have comprised the seven liberal arts. Originating in Greece some 2,000 years earlier with the Pythagoreans, it consisted of two parts, the trivium and the quadrivium. In Oxford and Cambridge, the trivium was a four-year course on grammar, rhetoric and dialectic, leading to the Bachelor of Arts degree. If you then wished to become a Master of Arts, you would spend three more years studying the quadrivium, consisting of arithmetic, mainly involving computing the date of Easter and the other dates in the church calendar, geometry, which included some geography and simple parts of Euclid's elements, astronomy, 
which included the works of Ptolemy and other Greek writers, but also had links with astrology, and music, based on Pythagorean ideas of musical intervals, in which each interval corresponds to a ratio of numbers. For example, for an octave, the ratio is 2 to 1, for a perfect fifth, it is 3 to 2, and so on. In the 15th century, the ancient universities went into decline, with the number of masters and students dropping from 2,000 down to about 300 or so. And here's the entire population of New College Oxford around the year 1450. Certainly little mathematics took place at this time. However, it was a golden age for architecture, much of it very geometrical in style. In Oxford, the magnificent Divinity School was built, while Cambridge witnessed the construction of King's College Chapel. And London saw the fan-vaulted ceiling of Henry VII's chapel at Westminster Abbey. Shortly afterwards, scientific instruments began to appear, such as the magnificent clock in King Henry VIII's palace at Hampton Court and various sundials in the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge appeared too. These included the Pelican sundial at Corpus Christi College in, in Oxford, and the very unusual sundials on the Gate of Honour at Gonville and Keyes College in Cambridge. In the 15th century, the development of printing revolutionised mathematics. Previously scholarly works such as the classical texts of Euclid and Archimedes, or of Apollonius, as shown here, had been available only in manuscript form. But the printed versions made these works more widely available. Important among these new printed works were introductory texts in algebra, arithmetic, and geometry. Here's a multiplication table from a book of 1488. In Oxford, the earliest book with any map for calculating the date of Easter on one's fingers. <laughs> Around this time, migration between the two ancient universities was common in both directions, and important Oxford mathematicians migrated to Cambridge to develop what would soon become a thriving mathematical community in Cambridge. The first was Cuthbert Tunstall, a close friend of Thomas More and Erasmus. He later became Bishop of Durham. Tunstall's De Arte Suputandi of 1522 was the first major arithmetic text to be published in England and was the best of its time. But up to now, all the books you've seen were printed in Latin, but great, gradually works appeared in English at a price accessible to all. If cunning Latin books were translate, into English well, correct, and approbate. All subtle science in English might be learned, as well as other people in their own tongues did. The most popular of the English texts running to many editions were the works of Robert Record. He was the other migrant from Oxford to Cambridge, starting at All Souls in Oxford, studying mathematics and medicine in Cambridge, 
and later becoming physician to Edward VI and Queen Mary in London. His ground of arts was an arithmetic book, explaining the various rules so simply that every child can do it. It was written in the form of a dialogue between a scholar and his master. Records other books included The Castle of Knowledge on Astronomy, The Pathway to Knowledge on Geometry, and the 1557 Whetstone of Wit on Algebra. The production of books was rapidly leading to a standardization in notation, and in The Whetstone of Wit we find the first ever appearance of the equals sign. And to avoid the tedious repetition of these words is equal to, I will set, as I often do in word use, a pair of parallels or gemo lines of one length. Thus, because no two things can be more equal. <laughs> The first English edition of Euclid's Elements was published in 1570 by Henry Billingsley, a former Oxford student who managed to combine being a translator of Euclid with being a prosperous London merchant. He later became Lord Mayor of London and Member of Parliament for the city. His book owes its success partly to the fact that it later became adopted as a manual at Gresham College. Billingley's Euclid opened with a very fruitful preface specifying the chief mathematical sciences, written by the alchemist, astrologer, and mathematician John Dee. In his far-reaching and influential preface, Dee classified the mathematical arts and sciences, particularly arithmetic and geometry, into 19 categories which he then discussed. However, the science of this period was increasingly that of merchants and craftsmen, rather than of Euclid and the ancient texts. Many of the new books were commercial arithmetics, containing computational rules and tables to help with financial transactions. Others, such as this text of 1616, involved practical skills such as surveying. And here's another one, on a surveying technique called pantometria. Such practical skills necessitated the development of appropriate instruments. And this book gives the description and use of a joint rule. The arms can be set to any given angle for use by a surveyor. Somewhat more complicated was this astronomical instrument, a gilt brass compendium of 1568, designed for the wealthy collector. Among the towns whose latitude is included here is Oxford at 51 degrees 50 minutes. The Renaissance had coincided with the great sea voyages of Columbus to America and Vasco da Gama to India. Such explorations had led to the development of map making and to new forms of map projection, such as the Mercator projection. The ancient Greek maps in Ptolemy's Cosmographia were continually being updated and woodcut copies could easily be mass-produced. 
By the late 16th century, books on navigation appeared regularly, such as Thomas Blondeville's A New and Necessary Treatise of Navigation Containing All the Chiefest Principles of the Art. Shortly after this, the mathematical practitioner Thomas Harriot appeared on the scene, possibly the greatest English mathematician that ever lived, with extensive writings on geometry <coughs> and exciting new work on algebra. However, he is best remembered for helping Walter Raleigh to survey and colonize the part of America now called Virginia. Harriot busied himself with every aspect of navigational theory and practice, and his success is described in a letter sent to Raleigh. Ever since you perceived that skill in the navigator's art might attain its splendor amongst us if the aid of the mathematical sciences were enlisted, you have maintained in your household Thomas Harriot, a man preeminent in these studies, in order that by his aid your own sea captains might link theory and practice, not without almost incredible results. All of this I find most interesting, as I have myself interest in navigation and have recently written a short report on the Northwest Passage to the South Sea through the continent of Virginia. In 1549, Edward VI has set up a royal commission on Oxford to reform it along Protestant lines. The visitors ordered large quantities of books to be destroyed, partly because mathematics was sometimes associated with alchemy and the occult, and many valuable manuscripts were lost. My old cousin, Parson Whitney, told me that in the visitation of Oxford in Edward VI's time, they burnt mathematical books for conjuring books. And if the Greek pro professor had not accidentally come along, the Greek Testament would have been thrown into the fire as a conjuring book too. Fortunately, some important mathematical books were rescued from a cart and they ultimately ended up in the Bodleian Library. The Bodleian Library is named after Thomas Bodley, who, appalled by the poor state of repair in the old library, gave money to build the school's quadrangle. Here is the famous Tower of the Five Orders, just recently completed, featuring the five types of classical column with King James I at the top. Many gifts of books were presented to Bodley, and an arrangement has recently been made with the stationer's company for the library to receive a free copy of every book published in England. As to the mathematical arts currently studied at Oxford, an interesting illustration can be seen in a recent book by Robert Flood. The ape points to arithmetic, and moving clockwise we see surveying, perspective, painting, fortification, engineering, sundialing, cosmography, astrology, geomancy, and music. However, much of the Oxford teaching was deplorable. But tutorials were given in lively fashion at Trinity College by Ralph Kettle. And one of his mathematical problems was to inscribe a triangle in a quadrangle. Bring a pig into the quadrangle and I will set the college dog on him. 
and he will take the pig by the ear. Then come I, and take the dog by the tail, and the hog by the tail. And so, there you have a triangle in a quadrangle. <laughs> Quad air at faciendum. My own college of Merton was probably the only Oxford college to have had continuous mathematics teaching since the 14th century. Here, Henry Saville lectured on Euclid's elements, as I remarked previously, and also on the new astronomy. These are his handwritten notes comparing the Earth-centered system of ancient Greece on the left with Copernicus's heliocentric system on the right. Saville was a distinguished warden of Merton for 26 years, a classical scholar who edited the works of St. Chrysostom in eight volumes. Before he died, he bequeathed his large mathematical library to the Bodleian Library. And here's his memorial in the antechapel at Merton, showing him flanked by Euclid and Ptolemy. But his greatest memorials were the civilian professorships that he founded in geometry and astronomy in 1619. As I mentioned earlier, I had the honor of being chosen by Sir Henry as his first professor of geometry, a position that I still hold to this very day. However, I was not the only candidate for the first civilian chair of geometry. Another was Edmund Gunter, inventor of many fine instruments, such as the quadrant and the sector. And he was the person who first introduced the word cosine to mathematics. When Henry Saville sent for Gunter, he came and brought with him his sector and quadrant and fell to resolving of triangles and doing a great many fine things. Said the grave knight, Do you call this the reading of geometry? This is showing of tricks, man. And so dismissed him with scorn, and sent for Briggs from Cambridge. <laughs> but although Edmund Gunter did not attain the civilian chair, he was quickly appointed the Gresham Professor of Astronomy in London, a post he held until just last year. To conclude my discourse on the mathematics of the past 600 years, I beg your indulgence while I relate my recent work with John Napier, Lord of Markinston, who, as I wrote in the letter of 1615, set my head and hands at work with his new and remarkable logarithms. I never saw a book which pleased me better or made me more wonder. As I have recently described them, logarithms are numbers invented for the more easy working of questions in arithmetic and geometry. The name is derived of logos, which signifies reason, and arithmos, signifying numbers. So the whole word signifies rational or proportional numbers. By them, all troublesome multiplications and divisions are avoided and performed only by addition instead of multiplication and by subtraction instead of division. The curious and laborious extraction of roots are also performed with great ease. It was above all designed to introduce practical applications of mathematics. Henry Briggs 
professor of geometry, was the first to popularize the use of logarithms. These replaced the task of multiplying two numbers by the much simpler task of adding two other numbers. The inventor of logarithms was a Scotsman, John Napier. Napier thought of two lines, one of finite length, the other stretching away to infinity. Now he considered two points, P and L. They both start moving at the same speed. And L just keeps on going at that speed. P, however, is slowing down. Its speed is equal to the distance it still has to go, its distance from the point Q. So when it's halfway between P0 and Q, it's only going at half its original speed. Now for the definition. Freeze the action. The distance L has traveled is called the logarithm of the distance P has yet to go. Napier produced tables of logarithms of numbers using this model. Here's what you had to do to multiply two numbers together. You take the logarithm of the first number, add the logarithm of the second, then subtract the logarithm of the number one. Then reading back from the tables, you get the product. However, it was awkward to subtract the logarithm of one in all the calculations. Henry Briggs simplified the problem by improving the definition of logarithms. Now, the logarithm of the product could be obtained simply by adding the logarithms of the individual numbers. And in this way, he popularized the use of logarithms for tradesmen, <coughs> craftsmen, and seamen. And these are the tables which Henry Briggs compiled and promoted at Gresham College, calculated with great precision to 14 decimal places. So Napier's logarithms were cumbersome, one difficulty being that the, logar the logarithm of one was not equal to zero. I resolved to visit him in Edinburgh to discourse with him on such matters and spent one month at his home in 1615 and again in the following year. The result of these deliberations was that I modified Napier's definition of logarithm, devising a new form shown here, based on the number 10 in which we multiply two numbers together by simply adding their logarithms. This makes a tremendous saving in time in calculations of any complexity. And in my Arithmetica Logarithmica of 1624, I published my extensive calculations of the logarithms of 30,000 numbers to 14 decimal places. These were the numbers from 1 to 20,000 and from 90,000 to 100,000. I understand that the logarithms of the intervening numbers, which have no remaining difficulty and require only the time of labor and calculation, are even now being supplied by a gentleman in the Low Countries. Meanwhile, in the process of calculation, I devised a new method for the long division of numbers which renders such calculations routine when the logarithms are not to hand. I consider these my work on the logarithms, to be my finest achievement. A view recently supported by a gentleman, 
who has, who has penned the following words. Every mariner who sails the sea and every astronomer who peers into the illimitable depths of space has reason to be grateful to the man who invented logarithms to the base of ten and who alone suggested the idea of compiling logarithms without which modern science would be completely at a standstill. I thank you for your kind attention. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.